I'm grateful that you've chosen to join us today as we continue our summer journey through this Old Testament book of Psalms. Only, what, three more years to go? Is that right? So stick around. Do not miss out. It's a summer study only, and so I know we'll, we'll be studying for the next several summers together. If you haven't already turned to Psalm 43, please do so right in the middle of your Bible. As you heard a moment ago from Don, that is page 380. So turn there in that pew Bible, that story Bible. If you don't have that Bible, that's our gift to you. So take it and keep that, if you would, as a gift from our church to you. Now, Matt mentioned last week that Psalms 42 and 43 were most likely combined into one psalm originally. So this week's message is really just Psalm 42, part two, only six verses. Now, you might recall from last week that, Mar- that Matt set the bar exceeding, exceedingly high, and so I'll do everything I can to keep up. But he did mention something almost offhandedly last week that really stuck with me. I don't think I've ever fully understood this fact that he mentioned in all my years of studying the Word of God. He pointed out that these two psalms were written by the descendants of Korah. Remember that? He just kind of said it in passing and moved on. If you know the story of Korah, he's actually one of the most tragic characters in Jewish history. Don't do it now, but when you get a chance, turn to Numbers chapter 16. That's Numbers chapter 16. Don't do it right this minute. I'll give you a quick preview of it. But make sure that you're ready to set aside some light reading. I say that facetiously. It's not light reading at all. Without going into too much detail, what you'll find there is a Hollywood-worthy cautionary tale filled with jealousy treachery, drama, among other things. Because Korah and then Moses, his cousin, yes, that Moses, the one you're thinking of, they were cousins, did you know that? Both of them from the priestly tribe of Levi. Now, in case you're not sure who that is, that's the group that was assigned by God to oversee worship and sacrifice for all of Israel. The problem was that Korah wasn't satisfied with cousin Mo's leadership, so he thought he could do the job just as well. He recruited a bunch of rabble-rousers to form an insurrection. They all rose up together in a short-lived, I say short-lived because if you read the story, you'll see, a short-lived rebellion that was swiftly squashed by God in a very decisive manner. How decisive? Well, God opened up the earth and swallowed everyone involved. Yes, you heard me right. The earth literally swallowed them alive. Now, that's the Korah whose descendants penned the words that you'll read in Psalm 43, the words that were read to you publicly a moment ago. I think it's particularly striking, maybe a bit ironic, that the family who'd once been known for its traitors became the very people chosen by God to record these words of praise and worship for ancient Israel as well as for you and I today. And the reason I say that is that I think it speaks to God's love Doesn't it speak to the power of his redemption? That this is the family he chose. Out of all the families he could have chosen, this is the one. Don't you think Korah's family probably knew a thing or two about the darkness of the depression that's outlined here? When there's struggle and it's related to something going on in your immediate circumstances, don't you think they probably knew it well? I doubt there was any family in all of of Israel that was more qualified to show that God is the only means of providing hope in the middle of life's most devastating and discouraging times. So let's take a look at the passage together. Would you notice with me how the psalmist puts it in 
verse 5. Look at what he says here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? My son and I were talking about that last night. You know what it's like to feel turmoil? Maybe on the outside, nobody really knows. Maybe you can put on a good face, a good front. And yet inside, there's this nagging thing that won't go away. Isn't it tremendous that the Word of God speaks to that condition? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He asks the question, why am I going through this? What's wrong with me? And then he declares a truth that he knows to be his his reason for success over and victory over depression. It's this hope in God. Now, if you've read through verse 5, and then if you remember from last week, you might have already picked up on the fact that the text of this verse, it's actually a word-for-word match of verses 6 and 11 in the previous psalm. In fact, flip over and look at that. Verses 6 and 11 of Psalm 42, word-for-word match. And there's a reason for that. It's because this is an ancient song. The word psalm really means song. So this was an ancient song that really was intended to be sung. It was an ancient praise and worship song, just like what we sing today. And the first two verses of the song are contained in Psalm 42. They both end with this repeated chorus, again, like I said, in verses 6 and 11 of Psalm 42. They end with this repeated chorus because the verses had just described the reasons that we as humans tend to sink into despair. But in this, Psalm 43, the third verse of the song, this final verse erupts in praise, proclaiming the reason that our hope is to be found in God alone. Isn't that the way our songs are constructed oftentimes today? It's the last verse that tells us the reason for the hope. And so that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Why should we find our hope in God? If you've ever struggled like I have with depression, with discouragement that's long-term, you might understand why this solution might seem, at first glance, to be a bit insufficient. You and I both know people with good intentions who will remind us that God's got this. Trust him. Hope in him. He's got it all taken care of. You can rely on him. And those words are meant well, aren't they? The problem is that depression hurts so deeply that even words of comfort like that can seem like platitudes when you are in your deepest, darkest struggle. Depression hurts deeply. I've been there. Maybe you have too. Maybe you're there now. So what are we to do? I believe the 43rd Psalm gives us an understanding of what to do as we hope in God. So let's look at it together. Author Ed Welch characterizes this devastating struggle that you just can't seem to shake yourself out of when you're in the deepest parts of despair. He describes the pain as not only agonizing, but, it, but as what seems like meaningless torture. We can take pain, can't we? Every mother who has been through childbirth understands the pain that, that is fulfilled in this great celebration, the birth of a new child. We can endure pain when there's some hope. It's when the pain seems meaningless that we struggle. Why? What's going on? It seems meaningless and purposeless. In Ed Welch's book, 
on depression, which is, in my opinion, one of the most remarkable works on the topic that I've ever read. In fact, my copy of this book, Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness, mine is just filled with tear-stained pages. About a dozen years or so ago, I was going through some tough times and read this, and it was as though God, in his mercy, pierced my heart with the words that I was reading here. Maybe that's where you are. I'd like to give this book to one of you today. I only have three conditions. At the end of the service, come see me if you've never read it before. I want this to be a gift to someone who's never read it. Secondly, you will read it. Don't give it away. Ooh, that'd make a great gift. I know it would. You can buy one on your own, but read this yourself if you've never read it before. And then lastly, my only condition. So only if you haven't read it, only if you will read it yourself. And then lastly, if you'd be willing to tell me how God used it in your life at some point in the future. Those are my conditions, so come see me. This one is a freebie to give away to you. In that book, Welch quotes Abraham Lincoln, who wrote about how it felt to lead a nation at war with itself. If you remember your history, in the 1860s, President Lincoln was the one who was trying to lead this fractured nation through the Civil War, and here's what he said. I'm now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, if everyone on earth had just a little piece of my depression, there wouldn't be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. See, that's what depression feels like. What do you do when people try to help you by offering you the opportunity to hope in God when you're that deep into it? When life seems dark, prospects are dim. How can we possibly find hope in God? Why do we rely on him? I really believe that Psalm 43 gives us a a grasp of what it takes and how it works. And so let's look at the first two verses of our text here. And I think there we'll find reason number one. And it's because God is our righteous judge. So take a look at those verses with me. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. God is our righteous judge. He knows what's happening, and he has nothing but our good in mind. Did you see how the psalmist pleads with God to vindicate, to defend, to deliver him? He asks for refuge rather than rejection. Doesn't that sound like the pleading cry of a heart that longs for justice in the middle of injustice? Someone who needs a righteous judge. Isn't that the way we feel when we struggle? God, how can you allow this to happen? It's like he's saying, see all these people who've wronged me, Lord? Get them. Protect me from them. Get me out of here. Deliver me. Prove to everyone that I serve the God who's really in charge. Show your might. God, how long are you going to hold back? Show your might. You know that I love you. Why are you allowing this to happen? But then at the end of verse 2, you you see a bit of this unspoken acknowledgement that God's rescue might not look exactly the way that I hope or want. His timeline might be different. The way he delivers, the way he rescues might not be exactly what I anticipate. His ways are not our ways, are they? I don't know the mind of God. In fact, you can hear the angst at the end of verse 2. Why have you rejected me? He says that knowing full well that God has not rejected him. 
Then immediately he follows up with another question. Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy, knowing full well that God does have control of it and there's no need to mourn. So it's back and forth and back and forth in his mind and in his heart. And if you've struggled with depression, you feel that. You understand it. You see, it's the same thing that Joseph realized when his brothers, the same ones who had sold him into slavery years before, pleaded for his mercy after he became this ruling official in Egypt. And notice what Joseph tells them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I don't always understand it. Do you think that every day that Joseph was in this prison, every day that he was um, captive in Egypt, a foreign land, do you think when he was falsely accused, do you think every day he was just telling himself, God, you got this? Maybe a little bit of that. But might there have been a little bit of that back and forth where years later he could look back and say, okay, you know what, God, I see that you really are my righteous judge. Because even though there may have been nothing but bad intentions for me by the devices of man, God, you had a purpose in all of it. Every step of the way I can see. As I struggled, you are the righteous judge. You see, he understood that everything in life, even the worst of times, all of it's in the hands of the righteous judge because God sees, God knows, God understands. I think it's what Paul recognized in Romans 12, verse 19, when he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He is the one keeping an eternal account. I think it's what the Apostle Peter saw in Jesus. He saw this reaction by his Savior when he was led to the cross to die this cruel and agonizing death, the very same death that he had asked God in the garden the night before, don't, don't let me go through this. Take this away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. In his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, tells us that Peter said that when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He committed himself to the righteous judge, God. You know, it's likely that we won't fully understand the reasons for painful times, at least not right now. But we do know the righteous judge who will one day make everything right, the one whose power is made perfect in weakness, like Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12. And you know what? In your deepest, darkest time, all you can do is grab a hold of that and say, God, I believe it. I trust you. Help my unbelief, but God, I believe it. Give me faith that it's true. I don't see it. I don't understand it. And right now, there's a part of me that's screaming out, it doesn't make sense. But God, I'm not going to rely on what I feel. I'm going to believe that you're the righteous judge. It's one step. Is that going to make your depression go away suddenly? Will all of your life's circumstances suddenly align simply because you've uttered those words? No. But I believe it's a step in a process of change that could lead you to the same conclusion that Joseph had. You meant it for evil, maybe, but God meant it for good. God's our righteous judge. That's one reason I believe that the psalmist reminds us to 
find our hope in him. But there's a second reason to find hope in God during these deepest and darkest struggles of life. And that reason is found in verse number three. So take a look at it with me, if you would, please. Send out your light, your truth. Let them lead me. Take a look at what I believe is the second reason. It's because God is our enduring guide. That's why I can find hope in him. He's our enduring guide. You see how the psalmist begs God to lead him with light and truth? He realizes that one of the surest paths to discouragement is to believe the lies that you tend to feed yourself in the middle of fear or anxiety or despair. Have you ever thought of that? I tend to listen to myself. In fact, last week, Matt mentioned one of my favorite quotes from author D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who asked, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? What do you usually tell yourself when you're listening? how bad things feel. Instead, talk to yourself. Take yourself back to the beliefs, the bedrock foundation of your beliefs found in the Word of God and tell yourself those truths. It might take some convincing. If you're stubborn like me, you're not a very good learner in the middle of struggle. But force yourself to listen to truth. Trusting that God will use it. It's a fantastic work, spiritual depression, its causes, and cure. I just happen to have a copy of that for one of you, too. You know my three conditions already, don't you? Make sure you haven't read it. Make sure you read it yourself, and then at some point in the future, tell me. I'm just feeling so generous up here, giving away all these resources. But I'd love to give that one to you. I think that Martin Lloyd's point in his book here, this, this quote that I, I've used several times, I think his point is that when doubt and fear creep into my heart, they convince me to believe Satan's big lie, which is that I'm all alone in my suffering and nothing and no one can help me. It's not going to change. It's only going to get worse. That's a lie. If we really believe the words of Romans 8, and I appreciate so much Pastor Dan reading them, I'm persuaded that death, life, principalities, powers, nakedness, famine, sort none of that is going to separate me from the love of God. Do you believe that? Now, the tricky question is, do you still believe that in the middle of depression? Well, yeah, but God's got to prove it. God's got to show it. I know. I understand. I understand. But I, I, I still go back to this truth, friends. My beliefs and my feelings, both of them inform my actions and my responses every day. I tend to lean toward one or the other. I know what happens when I lean toward my feelings. In fact, Proverbs 14 describes it pretty succinctly. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the path towards death, destruction. And I have felt that erosion of my joy, that erosion of my satisfaction in life that comes with depression when I lean on my own understanding. It seems right to me. I'm not trying to deny God. I'm not trying to omit him from his life, but this just seems right to me. Friends, that is why it is so essential that I speak truth to myself during these times of discouragement. It's because God is my enduring guide. And I want to make the case why it is that I believe the guide that he uses is his word. So take a look with me. See light and truth there in verse 3? Send out your light and your truth. What's he talking about there? Well, I think some people might interpret those ideas as prophetic references to Jesus, right? He is the light of the world, John 8. He's the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. We've all memorized those verses. And while I'm not going to argue against that idea, I 
think there's a point to it. I don't believe that's really in context what this passage means right here. I don't think that's what the descendants of Korah were referring to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think they understood well that light and truth, particularly in the Psalms, light and truth are common Old Testament references to the Word of God. Because it has an inherent ability to recalibrate the mind and the heart, especially in times of deepest turmoil. Let me prove it to you. David, remember when he was greatly distressed in 1 Samuel 30, because he had just returned home from battle, only to find that all the women in his city had been captured, including his own wives. The enemy had stolen them all. So what did David do? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, we're told that David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. What do you think that means? You think he just tried to think good thoughts about God's provision of strength. I know God is strong, and I know he'll make me strong too. Is that how he strengthened himself in the Lord as God? I don't think so. Do you think that he simply asked God for strength? Now, I'm sure he asked God, but was that the sum total of David now strengthening himself in the Lord his God? I don't think that's what he did. You know why I think that? Because I believe that David again and again and again went to the word of God for strength, and he proves it in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. King David himself wrote these words. Remember this description of how the Bible strengthens God's people by reviving the soul. That's what God's word does. It revives the soul. What else does it do? It rejoices the heart. I love this wording. It enlightens the eyes. Where do you typically see it in a person when they're depressed and discouraged. It's written all over their face, right? What does the Word of God do? It enlightens the eyes. The Word of God has this inherent ability. If you believe the truth of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, then you know that the Word of God is alive and it's active. It has the ability to change you from the inside out, and that's revealed in the countenance. Let me tell you something, friends. Every time, I I know people are sick of hearing me say this in, in context, but it's so true. Every time you open up the Word of God, you run the risk of being changed by it. And I know it doesn't feel like it at the time. It's a process that's lengthy. Hebrews 12 describes the process. Because right now it doesn't seem, no, no struggle at the time seems joyous but grievous, but afterwards, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of right living if you're willing to be trained, trained by it. And we understand that in the physical world, don't we? Training requires time. I can't go to the gym today and have bulging muscles tomorrow. It's a process that takes weeks, months, and years. Isaac didn't wake up, our, our, our worship leader, he didn't wake up with cannons. <laughs> It took some time. Isaac, I'm getting there. You give me 20 more years, I'll get there. We understand that in the physical world. Do we understand that there are spiritual muscles, friends, that need training and development? David did. Because he understood that the word of God revives the soul, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. I believe the idea is further supported in Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist, many will argue, but I think it's David, again, in Psalm 119. Some argue that Psalm 119 was written by several authors and David was only one. But I think these might be his words too. Psalm 119, 105, what does he say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 160, Of the same psalm, he adds, the sum of your word is truth. Think of that. The point I'm making is that verse 3 here in our text, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. 
I think that verse provides an incredibly comforting reason to hope in God when life is hard. He's not left us to wander through that darkness alone. Through the light of his word, he is our enduring guide. Think of this. God has already anticipated the struggles that you and I will face and has provided answers through an active and alive word that will change us from the inside out. Man, if there's not some hope in that. I think the problem we face is that we read and feel like it's not immediately better. It's like going in for an eight-hour session with barbells and thinking, why am I not immediately stronger? Give it time. See yourself through the the lens of, of Hebrews 12, verse 11. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of right living if you're willing to be trained. Let yourself be trained. I know it hurts. Find hope in God as your enduring guide. He is guiding you through his word, friends. Let me give you what I think is the third and final reason to find hope in God. When life deals, it's worst. It's found there in verse 4. Take a look with me. I think reason number three, not only, it's, not only can we find hope in God because he's our righteous judge, not only because he is our enduring guide, but also thirdly, because he's our exceeding joy. And I love how the psalmist puts those exact words right in the text. Take a look. Then I'll go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. I want you to notice one other thing about this verse that's fantastic. Notice how many times the word God is used here. See it? How many times? Can you count them up? In one verse, four times, right? That's double the number of times he uses the word for God in the previous three verses in this psalm, this verse of the song. I believe there's a reason for that. It's because the psalmist is emphasizing an important point here. The Hebrew word Elohim refers to God's majesty, to his honor, to his fullness as the one true creator of all. And that's the word that's used here, the word Elohim, or its forms. It depicts the sovereignty of God. He's the all-powerful and unique God to whom nothing else and no one else compares. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later in the Genesis account, when he says, let us make man in our image, that's the same word. In fact, God is so above and beyond us, he exists in three persons who are one. I don't even understand it. It's mind-blowing, but that's the nature of my sovereign God, Elohim. You see, by using that word over and over, the psalmist links his joy to the fact that God really is who he claims to be. And notice how he links himself to a genuine relationship with his people. Oh God, my God, verse 4. We are his and he is ours. You see, the false gods of all the other nations were viewed by their people as finicky, as temperamental, as fickle requiring appeasement, not so with the one true God. He desires a relationship with you. You know why you can find hope in time of difficulty? Because God really genuinely cares about you individually. We commune with him when we worship with him, whether it's collectively or individually or both. Our God loves us. Us. We love him and he loves us. That's why he he is our exceeding joy. He doesn't just give us exceeding joy, friends. He is our exceeding joy. You see, in times of overwhelming agony, it might seem impossible to catch even the slightest glimpse of joy, let alone achieve it. We desperately seek it, but depression makes it elusive. 
What should move us to praise, however, is the realization that joy is not to be found in escaping my circumstances. It's not better or improved circumstances. It's not just a stronger sense of resolve to to find strength to get through it. But it's in God himself. It's what David reminds us of in Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Pastor Steve Byers points out that it's not primarily about a process, but about a person, God himself. My greatest concern is not that you'll learn a series of biblical principles for conquering depression, discouragement, or whatever. His book is about putting your past in its place, the discouragement that goes with it. It's not about principles or a few steps of behavioral obedience. Ultimately, God offers us the possibility of experiencing a vibrant, joyful relationship with him. Excellent book by Steve Byers, Putting Your Past in Its Place. Oh, I just happen to have a copy up here. Same deal. Yeah. So come see me. Giving away three books up here. If you're in a hard place in your life right now, my prayer is that you would truly find your hope in God. Don't suffer alone. God is your righteous judge, friends. He's your enduring guide, and he himself is your exceeding joy. He's provided a personal relationship with you and I through his son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is truly the Savior of the world. He proclaimed, I and the Father are one in John 10. Colossians 2 puts it that he's the fullness of God. It exists in the Son. Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He is our righteous judge, Jesus is, as the Son of God, with all the the inherent qualities of the Godhead. He's our righteous judge, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he really is Lord. Remember that? We read that earlier today in Philippians 2. He's our enduring guide who promised never to leave us or forsake us. He said low to his disciples. He says, low, I am with you always. He's our enduring guide. He's our exceeding joy. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So come to him. Or if you've already at some point in your life come to him, then look to him. Because when depression strikes, friends, we've got to find some way to do more than just manage it. We've got to find some way for it to provide meaning. And by pointing us to God, our righteous judge, our enduring guide, our exceeding joy, we find meaning in him. We're going to sing in a moment. Our final song is entitled, Christ is All. Maybe you don't typically pay a lot of attention to the lyrics of songs but I'd like to ask you to make an exception this time because that third verse, just like the third verse of Psalm 42 and 3, it's that third verse that's particularly poignant. So when you see the words on the screen, maybe you're struggling right now. When you see those words on the screen, sing them if you can. But if you can't, maybe you'd be better served to let these beautifully poetic words wash over you. And in the trial, when storms are raging, Though tears may fall, my soul will rise. For there's a peace that's mine unchanging. There's a joy that never dies. It's that Christ is all. 
Christ is all. My song will ever be Christ is all, all in all. And my song will ever be Christ is all. So friends, are you struggling? Let me encourage you to come talk to me. I would love to spend some time one-on-one with you and develop these thoughts a bit more. But today, rest in this incredible assurance from Psalm 43 that God is your righteous judge, your enduring guide, your exceeding joy. May God grant us the peace to find our true hope in him. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you so much for this truth from your word. I praise you for friends here. God, maybe there's someone here who is just right now taking it on the chin. I don't know what their life circumstances hold. God, I do know this, that in my struggle, these are the sorts of truths, God, that center my focus back where it belongs, on the fact that I find my true hope in God. Lord, I don't want it to be empty, vain words. I don't want it just to be a smile and an expression or a slogan. I want it to be the cry of my heart that I find my hope in you, O God. I see you as being fair and just. I see you as using your word to guide me. I see you as being the source of true joy. I'm not joyous because of this life circumstance, but I'm joyous because of you. God, I need those reminders.